At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 638th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Urban Farm. Nope, I'm not really there, but this is Janice Norton speaking. I am your host tonight, and I'm here with Kari Spencer a good friend of the Urban Farm. Thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Janice. (laughs) (laughs) I love working with you with everything that we've been doing. So for those of you who don't know Kari, Kari is a master gardener. She is an author. She is a seed saver. She is very active in educating others for many, many gardening purposes and has given presentations and talks much longer than I've ever known her. And she is one of the most genuinely helpful people in gardening. She's so supportive and so encouraging when for new gardeners for starting out. She did write a book. It is called City Farming. And I would recommend anyone who lives in a city who wants to start out or expand their knowledge of gardening to try that. You can go into so many different areas with so much information packed into this book. It, I'm still reading pages. I'm like, I'm still surprised by stuff I find in there. It's awesome. So a lot of free stuff on the website at cityfarmingbook.com as well. Lots of information there. Thank you. That's perfect. All right. Tonight we are talking about permaculture in the garden. And my little lead in is great gardeners seem to know all the rules, but the very best gardener is the one who wrote the rules. She's mother nature and has no equal. Her systems and regenerative cycles can be replicated in our own gardens and food forests to help them be amazingly resilient. Permaculture is the best way to start, and it can make your gardening much easier. And our author and friend and extraordinary great partner, I'm a partner with her in another business, Kari Spencer, is going to help us find the best ways to adopt permaculture practices for increased resilience in our gardens. So welcome, Kari. Thank you. I love (laughs) that introduction. I I was waiting. Who's the ultimate expert? Oh, Mother Nature. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) I love the practice of permaculture because we get to emulate so many things that have already been worked into perfection. And what better way to do that through, I mean, the different teachings of permaculture, which are applicable across the globe in so many ways, and to take those little pieces and put them into our own gardens. I just love this. I'm so excited about this. When when we were, Greg and I were brainstorming about topics for this month and for all the months, actually he kind of let me brainstorm all the topics, but I was like kind of jealous that he was going to be able to do this one. And then he got sick. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad you're here today. Oh, I love this. 
I love it. I love working with you. I really want to start off. I mean, we were talking before, and one of the things that you had mentioned is that permaculture is such a, a concept that sometimes it's hard to tie down. So let's start with what's your definition of permaculture? <laughs> oh my goodness. It's really hard to put permaculture in a nutshell. It is such an amazing concept and there are so many ways to put it into practice. But for me, I will just tell you what permaculture is for me. I'm a lazy gardener. At least I like to be as lazy as I can be. I don't mm -hmm. want to do more work than is necessary to get a yield. Right. So permaculture to me is looking at nature and what nature does and what I can let nature do mm -hmm. in my garden instead of trying to fight it against it. I can partner with nature so that it does the work and I reap the benefits and I just keep the ball rolling and help things to move along smoothly. Yeah. And the more I observe about how that works, the better I get at doing it. It's kind of a hard, hard concept to wrap your mind around at first when you start doing it, but the possibilities in it are fantastic. And we're going to talk about some of those today. Right. What's your definition? <laughs> You know, I took my permaculture course a few years back and we were challenged to come up with our definition. That was a little bit more challenging for me because I say Greg's definition all the time. <laughs> yeah. And because I type it and say it in, in so many different ways, it really, it's, it's my definition too. It's the art and science of working with nature. Now, I love this. I've, I've added on to it a little bit because in my garden, my orchard, I spend so much time focusing on it in spurts. I don't get to spend daily time on my garden, which is why I mostly orchard. I don't garden as much as I'd like to, because I have so many periods where I don't get to do what I need to do. But I know that my garden will take care of itself. My orchard will take care of itself during those times that I'm not there because of those systems that are taking, that are working for me. So that's to me, a really good example of being a lazy orchardist because I'm not lazy in here, but I'm lazy out there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and sometimes you're just not getting to it. It sounds like, and not. so you're letting nature do some of that work and that frees you up. I had the most there. delicious, exciting surprises this year in my orchard, in my garden because I was letting things go. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later when we talk about ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So because gardens are really micro sections of our yard, and there's this concept in permaculture about microclimates, let's touch on that. Can you help us understand what a microclimate is and what that relationship is to our gardens? Sure. Let's start with a macroclimate. Okay. You and I live in Phoenix, Arizona. Our macro climate is the low desert, and it is so hot and dry here for the most part, right? But in my yard, I have some shaded areas that are a bit cooler, right? I have areas where the wind comes through, a wind, you know, windy microclimate in, a, in small areas. I have places that are wetter than the macro climate because maybe the air conditioner drips there. Right. Or, or my gutters are there. So water, you know, is there more often than is found in just the surrounding macroclimate. So, and my backyard is not a desert. <laughs> it's in the desert, but I have 
you know, areas where there's good soil because I've been making it. What microclimates do you have in your? Well, in uh, my yard, well, actually in my, my property, I've got a microclimate on the front part of the house, which is North. And so it gets really cool most of the year and it barely get, and there's this one section that barely gets much direct sun which is beautiful in this one area because I've got this one bush that grows there that gets to flower all the time as it is a, it's a sun plant, but not a Arizona full sun plant. Mm-hmm. And so that's good for that. And then I've got some more deserty type of scenes out front, just because that's where it's required for my community. And then in the backyard, I've got this jungle. I love this. <laughs> and even in there, I've got my super cool zones underneath the grapevines. I've got my arid zones over by the wall. I've got my pathways, which I love, love, love walking through my orchard in the spring, because just, I feel like my trees are reaching out to touch me. And that's a different feeling back when I walk through the trees than when I walk back over by my basil bushes. So yeah, there's definitely different microclimates and different things create that. You've got where your walls are, where your wind tunnels are, where your sun comes through, where your water is, even soil texture can change mm-hmm. your microclimates. Sure. Slope. Oh, definitely slope. That's true. Um, because Yeah, because water runs downhill, right? So and what's uphill? In most places, people in their garden, they will make rows and they'll make furrows and hills and they plant in the hills to keep water. We plant in the furrow, right? The water (laughs) collects. We have hot zones here in Arizona. There's a lot of block walls. So Mm -hmm. I have one wall because of the way that the sun moves across it. Most of the wall is in the shade most of the time. And by the end of the wall, it's in the sun with very little shade, right? Same wall, different microclimates just along that wall. You know, in Iowa, if someone had a wall like that going along a property, their microclimate surrounding any section of that wall would be completely different than it would be for Washington or Florida or Arizona. Our microclimates are going to be really dependent on where we are and what's around us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we're talking about microclimates, what happens in a climate is a very cyclical thing, cyclical, cyclical. It just keeps going through this process. You've got winter, spring, summer, fall, and we know basically what to expect from our, our climates. We have kind of this idea of what's happening within those climates and within even most, for the most part, our microclimates. But we were talking about something called closed systems. Now that's a good permaculture concept. So can you explain? (laughs) Yeah. Closed systems. Let's see where to start with this. A closed system is obviously a system (laughs) that's closed. Now it it meets, it meets its own needs. It's a system of growth, you know, birth, death, decay, new growth, and everything that happens in it is provided by its own circle. (laughs) Okay. If you think of a giant ecosystem would be like a rainforest. Uh. Okay. So the rainforest provides all its own needs. There's nobody out in the middle of the rainforest who is tending it. There's nobody out there sowing seeds, nobody out there cleaning up the brush, trimming the trees. Yeah, there's, there's nobody, there's no trash collector. There's no, no one to bury the bodies, right? <laughs> it has to meet its own needs other than maybe some water that comes in from 
the outside, and sun, which is the energy for it. Okay, so that's that, it, but it's closed because it meets its own needs. Right. Now in our gardens, our gardens can't meet all of their own needs, but we certainly can set up tiny little closed systems and then expand upon those. Okay, so as an example, on our farm, we don't have chickens anymore, but when we had them, <laughs> we had a compost pile, we had our gardens, and we had our kitchen. And they created a closed system because we would take the scraps from the kitchen, put them in the compost, those scraps would break down, the compost would go into the garden, the garden would grow more veggies, and we'd throw the waste from the garden and the waste from the kitchen back into the compost pile, and it just kept circling around. I should go this way. <laughs> yeah, but then after we got that worked out, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is so much work to turn this compost pile. Let's put the chickens in the compost system. Okay, now the chicken poop <laughs> went into the compost pile. Oh, and this. the chickens would tear up the compost pile and essentially turn it. They would eat some of that waste. So they didn't have to feed them as much with an outside source. Right. Right. And then all that beautiful compost. Oh, their bedding too would go in there. All that beautiful compost go in the garden. My soil improved immensely. So we had even more produce <laughs> to go in the kitchen and even more, you know, waste after you harvest and you clean the dead plants out back into the compost. So now I had a, a chicken compost garden kitchen cycle. Wow. And with the increase in your harvest and the increase in your compost, it almost became a little positively reinforcing as everything just kind of expanded and expanded. Uh-huh. It wasn't yeah. completely closed. Right. It came pretty close, you know, so that's that's a, a small example. For my own yard, I recently got to experience a little bit of that because I've got all these fruit trees. I love fruit trees. I love and I love soil. That's for both aspects of what I tend to put my energy in. And after some trimming of some trees, I would have you know the leftover branches. Well, I'd try to take the smaller branches and turn that into mulch, cut them into little pieces and throw it around the tree as much as I can because I want to build that mulch. A very essential tool for helping us protect our soils and nurture our soils in the desert, but useful everywhere. Cause it's like what happens in the forest, right? Now the mulch is feeding my trees and rebuilding the soil, but the extra branches that were really thick, I was throwing them back in the corner and kind of letting them sit there for a while. Hadn't had a super design plan for it, but I didn't want to waste it. And then I got a chance to build a new garden bed for my granddaughter. Yes, I have a granddaughter. I got a garden bed for my granddaughter. And we started with all the leftover branches. They just went down to the bottom, which started a hugel culture garden, which allowed me to do that process. And that's going to create a really good bed, starting bed for my garden. That's not completely closed, but it is a very applicable process in relationship to permaculture because we're using the resources that are here and keeping them in the same zone and not wasting them and sending them off elsewhere. Yeah. We were talking earlier when we were just batting these ideas around between us that my system with the compost and the chickens is very fast. Yeah. Yours is much slower because you're using bigger pieces of wood and they break down a lot more slowly. So sometimes these closed systems can work fast and sometimes they're very slow and relaxed. True. 
you know, I want to step, I know where we're going with this because that's pretty important, but I also want to step in. Hey folks, if you have any questions, go ahead and put them in the Q&A. We would love to start answering them as we're talking about permaculture in the garden. And if you are listening to this episode as a podcast later, you got to sign up and come back and join us for our next chats. And you can just join us and add us questions in here. And we'd like to take those during the class. So we were talking about slow versus fast. And that brought up another concept that we were thinking about, about how the benefit of going slowly is going to help you in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Want to run with that? <laughs> Run with it. Yeah, that's a perfect thing to say, because that's what I was doing with my garden and farm when we first started, because I was so excited. Oh, yeah. I wanted everything all at once. (laughs) And yeah, we got everything all at once. And then, oh, my goodness, it was really hard to manage. And we had to back things up. But you can save yourself a lot of trouble (laughs) and create much better systems, a lot easier to manage systems and a lot and healthier systems by going slowly. And you don't have to redo them as, as often. <laughs> right. You don't have to like <laughs> take out elements like, oh, that was too much. Now I can't do that. Or that would be better over there. Yeah. Or I wish I had built that there or yeah. So the key, and how do you do this? Well, the key is when you're starting out, start by just observing. Okay. So Go out and observe your property in different seasons, different times of day, different weather, different weather. Yeah. If it's raining, go out. If it's snowing on and see where the rain's running. If it's snowing, see where the snow packs up. That's right. Yeah. We want to go out and see where things are growing really well, just naturally. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's areas that are just nothing is growing there. What's the reason for it? You know, you can start inspecting to see, well, what, what's going on here? Where are insects? Where are squirrels? Where are <laughs> different critters on your property? Where does your dog run? Because our dog got, had a pattern of running back and forth on the fence. And I couldn't keep anything planted there because it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't matter what I did. Couldn't keep them out. You know, so he just trampled it. Instead of fighting my dog, I just stopped planting right there, right? (laughs) And if I had observed in advance, I would have realized that and not planted and had to just not had things die. Yeah, in my yard, I had planted and I had been doing my observation. I thought I had done well. You need to do more than just topical, though. You need to observe what's happening in the ground, too. If you can, especially if you're going with some bigger things like trees, give yourself a few drainage um, holes and see what happens. I planted everything and it rained the same day. And I realized I needed to pull everything out and do some new processes. But I was lucky to find out the same day, not a year later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do some so, some core samples or just, you know, dig down a little bit in your yard. See if you have clay soil, if it's sandy, you know, because the drainage will be different in sandy soil than clay. A lot better, a lot faster drainage in sandy soil. Yeah, and if you're doing in-ground or above-ground gardens, that water needs to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are just so many things. Where do leaves fall? <laughs> Where do My pine place- needles fall? Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of things that you can observe, and I'm probably not going to be able to tell you every single one. You'll just have to go out and look and see what's there. 
Greg's recommendation is to observe for a full year before you make any big plans. You can do your little stuff, but if you're going to do something big, go ahead and observe for a full year because that's going to really save you a lot of hassle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It will. It'll save you from planting something in the wrong place. (laughs) Right. Another thing to observe is you. What do you want most? What do you want out of this? Yeah. Really want, not just spur of the moment you see something, you see a a baby chick in the store and you have to take it home. You know, (laughs) do you really want that chicken? Right. What is your style? Are you somebody who really likes when you are into something, you're doing it every day and you can maintain motivation? Or are you a person who really likes to start like me and not so much to finish? <laughs> I have to do self more self-sustaining things because I get excited and I put something mm-hmm. in and it really has to maintain itself. I kind of am a live or die gardener. If it makes it, it makes it. Right? If it doesn't, it doesn't. Also, what, what is your energy? Right. Are you going to be able to manage everything you want to do or do you need to keep it less? Right. Your energy. Are you a person who can get down on the ground or should you build things up at higher level? What kinds of things should you plant if you can't bend down to the ground? And who else is going to be joining you in all of this? Because if you're doing this for family, what is the age and the interaction of your family? I mean, you've got grandchildren. That's one thing. You got to keep stuff a little small. You've got somebody who wants to garden and they are wheelchair bound. Got to make sure they've got access. Mm-hmm. Maybe your husband likes to grill in an area. You don't want to tear that up and put a garden in. And then he's like, where am I going to grill? Darn. You know, you can talk to your family about what they would like if you have other people living with you, for sure. Right. Also, how can you make things easy? Okay. And part of making things easy is where are natural places where you could put in paths, where you could get a wheelbarrow through? Right. How is the latch? On your fence. Is it hard to open or is it really easy? Make it easy. Make it easy. Opening that latch or to your shed, you're opening that all the time. One time it might not be a big deal to mess with a tough, with a difficult latch. But if you're doing that every day, maybe a couple times a day, make it easy. And if you are, you know, if you've got a bigger space and you don't want to have to keep dragging the hose around, install water sources in multiple places around your yard so that you're not working so hard to get your water where you need it. Yes. Or plant things that like water in wet areas, but I don't know what that is in Arizona, but in a wet area, (laughs) you know, I mean, for me, it would just be underneath the air conditioner drip. If you have a dry spot, then plant something that can handle the dryness. So you're not having to water that all the time. Right. Plant things close or put things close together that work together that go together right compost pile can go right next to the chicken coop so the chickens can interact with it put your compost pile near your garden so you don't have to be lugging it everywhere right maybe even go ahead and do a composting in place where you actually compost in a fallow garden bed 
I actually got to the point where I was now, if you could see my yard, it's full of wood chips. I started with the entire thing blanketed with wood chips and I would go out and I didn't want to walk out on the wood chips and I did not really have a compost pile. So I kind of started something because I was kind of a real lazy person. I just would toss the compost out into the wood chips. I got the best volunteer plants and I got a great little garden because that was the close area that I could toss my, you know, little leftovers that I had because I wasn't, I wasn't having the time to do the compost. Well, you know, compost tomatoes are often the best. (laughs) I've got a few of those, Yeah, you know, you know, and one of the things that happens naturally in any natural wildlife zone or uh, planting zone is an ecosystem develops. And we have multiple types of ecosystems. We've got our soil ecosystem, which is a big fan, you know, a big area that I love to promote, but we also have what happens above that. And between those two, the interface between the soil and right above the ground, you get this great relationship of insects and bugs and lizards and birds and snakes and, and animals. And that can just If you're allowing this to happen and to be supported by what you're doing, you will get the benefit. I personally had the best, best, best surprise the other day. If you go to Urban Farm Facebook page, you'll see this video of this lizard that I found in my yard. Startled me because it it moved when I was standing right next to it. But it was like that big around. I don't know if you can see this. It's like that big around in the (laughs) belly. It was huge for us. And um, because I got these little gecko things for the longest time, but this is a granddaddy Godzilla lizard. And then the other day I found another one and we were laughing about that. And she was a little smaller. I think it's a she. We ended up calling her Mothra. So I've got Zilla and Mothra. And then in another section, I had some more. I mean, I have this fabulous ecosystem that is creating this life place for basically lizards and other animals and bugs out there. One thing you may have heard people talk about a lot in the in the desert is scorpions. Everybody's worried about scorpions. Where are the wood chips and scorpions, the desert and scorpions? Yeah, there's definitely scorpions in Arizona all over the place, but I'm not getting them in my house. I'm sure they're out there in the yard, but they are well taken care of. They are a nice smorgasbord for my Mothra and crew. Mm-hmm. They probably like your wood chips better than your house too. Yeah. So, you know, some people say, well, if you bring in wood chips, aren't you going to get scorpions? Well, in the wood chips, maybe, but not, you know, they'll, they'll prefer that to your house. I've noticed that I've, I've set up the way I've set it up is that the wood chips are out there away from the house. They're not up next to the house. So I don't have to worry about, you know, termites and stuff being brought into the house. Everything's just a little bit away and it slopes it gradually increases the further it gets away from my house to the point that there's just this beautiful, beautiful self-perpetuating mm-hmm. cycle of nutrients, of waste of, of the leaves, of the branches, of whatever fruit I didn't eat, or not that there's much of that at this point, but there, you know, whatever falls to the ground, the leftover pieces, and then the bugs and the and the the insects and the the lizards and, and the birds they all work together to create a beautiful experience when I go out there. That's me. Oh. I get a little passionate about it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I mean, you, if you're, if you are patient and are willing to wait and let nature work, you're going to see amazing things. You know, if you, if you get panic stricken, like 
I used to when I saw aphids in my garden Mm. and you go out and you spray pesticide all over the place, you'll never see what could happen. If you spend some time, just go, just breathe. (sighs) What's going on here? Okay. Aphids often come with ants. Do I have ants who are protecting aphids? Okay. How can I deal with ants if it's really an ant problem, not an aphid problem? Okay. What if I am slow down and relax and I wait for the ladybugs to move in? They love aphids, right? And if I wait, the ladybugs will begin to show up. But if I spray that area with pesticides, I'll never see them. I'll never see the ladybugs. Hummingbirds come in to take care of the little flying gnats and bugs and stuff. And that's just what we know locally. I know there have got to be their own little animal insect cycles out elsewhere in other states. Mm-hmm. And those of you who are listening, send us in. Tell us what your cycles are that you're observing. You know, I want to talk about zones. But before we start going into zones, because that's important for permaculture, Jewel had a non-permaculture question that popped in. She said, wondered why you stopped raising chickens. That's a really long story. (laughs) (laughs) In a nutshell, my mother needed to move in with us and we could not, 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 not find a property that would work for us with her living with us and having a farm and doing it in as quick as we needed to, right? And so we moved for my mom. (laughs) Family first. Yeah. So, and then I realized my children have grown up and my children were really the ones who took care of the the chickens. Uh I would have to do it all by myself now, right? But I still have a coop. I loaned it to my niece. And, but you know, I think probably I'll get a, a few chickens at some point. And I noticed we have a question about quail and composting. Right. Well, quail, you can't let them like free range. So if you had an enclosed compost, they could go in there, but they're not going to be able to scratch up and turn compost as well as chickens do. Right? It wouldn't be a bad thing to have quail in your compost as long as you kept them secure, but they probably- not as efficient. Yeah, not as efficient. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so zones. Zones are a big, big concept in permaculture. Let's talk about zones in the garden. (laughs) Okay, if you've ever seen permaculture zone diagram, they often make it look like a bullseye target. Right. Right, so in the middle of the bullseye target is your zone, zone one. Okay, your zone zero. Your zone zero. But zone one is the area right around your house. Okay, zone two is the area that you visit a lot, but it's not right next to your house. Okay, so maybe you have a, a patio a little ways out that you frequent often, okay, but it's not touching your house. Then there's zone three, a little further out. And as we get further out in the zones, we can think about where we want to place things within those zones to make it convenient for us. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So I mean, your your chickens are going to be a daily activity. So even if they're not next to the home, they are going to be extending your zone one out. And everything in between there is going to be having some daily noticings too. 
Right. I might put my, okay, since our homes are not, don't look like bullseye targets, Mm -hmm. (laughs) these zones kind of, they're more like a puzzle putting together. Right. Concentric circles. So you could put, I would put maybe a chicken coop in a zone two, because I wouldn't want it right next to my house. Mm -hmm. Right. But I would make it really easy to get to because I'm going to go there. Because you need to go there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I might put my goats in a zone three. I'm going to visit them every day, but I'm not going to interact with them as much as my chickens. And I certainly don't want goat sounds and smells, you know, right Right up to my, on my house. I mean, but you might want to put them in zone one or two or in zone, you know, if you, if you want them right there with you. Personal preference. It is a personal preference for sure. I like having herbs in zone one because I use herbs and onions and garlic all the time. So I put those right outside my door, right? I put a lot of pollinator flowers in zone one, because I like to see them every day. They're so pretty. So, you know, you just, it's just something you might want to Google permaculture zones and see what they're all about. And, you know, they go out to even where people with enough property will have wild zones where they just let it, let nature happen, right? Away from their house. A little forest in the backyard somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have that, but my aunt, and uncle did, you know, they have actual forest on their property. I don't, but no, I think that one of the neat things about the concept of zones, when you're even thinking about your own gardens is if you have multiple garden beds, you're going to want to put the plants that need the most attention in a zone closer to where you daily track. So if you are, if you're able to go out and you kind of know your routine, put the plants that are going to need the most attention closer to where your normal track is. If you have something that's going to be taking a while before it gets, you can can let it sit off by itself to grow that kind of stuff that you can definitely put out on a a zone two or zone three, or even a zone four, if you need to. But by recognizing that it'll help you as you do your planning. You know, if you've got, if you're lucky enough to have more than one garden bed, you can kind of do figure out that itself. If it makes sense to you, it'll help you with some of your planning. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think about, I was thinking about an example Greg gave, you know, my driveway is not really an area where I garden a lot or where Mm -hmm. I put a lot of plants other than some ornamental ones. But Greg actually has, I believe, is it a kumquat tree? Yes, he does. It's right next to his driveway. Like He's got a kumquat and his favorite peach right next to his driveway. Yeah, because he wants to see those when they're ripe because they don't hang on the tree for a long time like some other fruits do. Citrus can hang on the tree for a while. Right. Kumquats, not so much. Three days, yeah. And so he wants to be able to drive by and see that. So you can put things where you want. (laughs) It's you who's getting to decide all this. It doesn't have to be because that's how people do it, right? People put their garden back there. No, <laughs> you want, put it where you want it. <laughs> you think it might grow best. And even if you don't have ideal, what people call ideal gardening space, like, oh, it's got to be on the east. It's got to get morning sun and afternoon shade or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is in your area that people say is the best garden place. Some people have that and great, put it in the best garden space. But if you don't have that, 
so what? Go out and observe. See where things can grow. Now, I do have the east section of the house where it's cooler and get the, the shade, but it's not a place that I trans, you know, that I walk on a frequent basis. So if I was to put a garden in the ideal, technically ideal garden spot, that garden would get no attention from me at all. Mm-hmm. So you got to think about that too. Yeah, the technical ideal is often not realistically culture. Yeah, it, uh. <laughs> it, it doesn't mesh with nature. It sometimes can fight against it. So, you know, it's so, it's so personal to where you live and what your microclimates are and who you are. You said something earlier while we were talking about this class, we're partnering with nature. We don't need to try and control nature. We're working with nature. I love that concept. If nature can do something, I'll let it. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and that allow, and once you realize that you're partnering with nature and there's so much in nature that is going to want to do some of the processes that need to happen, you can slip off so many of those little jobs, you Mm -hmm. know, building soil, building soil is not as hard as it seems. Mm -hmm. If you allow natural processes to do the decomp, you are going to be building soil by giving it the materials that it needs. And that's partnering with nature, water, by partnering with nature in how the water falls on your yard, where it you can collect it, you can have so many opportunities for getting into that cycle and benefiting for your garden and your your the rest of your yard. Mm-hmm. And what about seeds? You know, if you let some of your plants go to seed and you collect those seeds, you don't have to buy seed. You have it. Or you can let some plants go to seed and just naturally seed for the next year. Mm -hmm. Like chamomile. And what does Greg have in his yard that keeps coming back? Kelpies and parsley and carrots. Oh my gosh, there's so much that keeps regenerating in his cycle. I can't even make the list. Yeah, there are some things that will seed themselves. Perennial plants. If you want food that you'd ever have to replant ever, you know, well, I shouldn't say ever, but if you don't want to replant it every year, get some perennial food plants. You know, there are those, you know, mm-hmm. as you know, fruit trees are an example of that. Yeah. Partner with nature to do some of this work. <laughs> I have very adorable exterminators in my yard. They're my Mothra and Godzilla. <laughs> your lizards <laughs> my lizards. actually I have a fun picture on my computer of one of the first years that I had lived here there was this lizard that was probably about well, I guess the body was probably about four inches long nothing too huge compared to what I've got now and this thing would go out and it would do it would sit in the sun and then it would start doing push-ups and I was like teasing my husband about how I had this really good looking guy on my backyard doing push-ups and I just became one it was it was fun to see what was happening and with the birds and the and the lizards. I was worried about my lizards, but my lizards are doing great. You know, that reminds me also of another concept in permaculture that is kind of hard to wrap your mind around sometimes. What's that? The problem is the solution. Oh. Okay. It sounds oxymoronic, doesn't it? It does, but please, <laughs> I'm, I know where you're going. Go with that. <laughs> Sometimes we have things that happen or exist on our properties that might seem like a problem. But if you can look at them a different way, or if you can 
move that thing or if you can use it some other way, it can become a solution for something else. Okay. We had, I'm trying to think of a good example for this. There are so many, but we had birds that would eat our mulberries that fell, which was fine. Eat them all you want if they're falling, but they would come on my patio and poop purple. Lovely. Yeah, it was awful. Right. (laughs) Right. So I was just fit to be tied about that. And they would nest up in the eaves of the patio. That's why they were hanging out there. So this is a problem. How do I get rid of these guys? Well, that purple poop is fertilizer, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to figure out a way just to get the the pigeons and doves completely out of our lives, we figured out a way to move them. So we sealed up all the spots on the eaves where they were nesting. Nesting. And we created an area where they could nest in another spot. And we put that over a garden area so that if they pooped, it was going in the garden. There you go. You just directed it. Yes. And some of the pigeons did that and others were looking for other places to nest, but they weren't on my patio anymore. (laughs) So that was good. Now in my yard, while we were trying to dig and get started, we ran into the problem because where we live is on an old riverbed. We've got a lot of rock and clay in our soil. Some of our rocks are, you know, only about that big, which is too big to garden in sometimes. And some of them were quite large. But as I was working my yard and getting ready for my trees, I had all of this rock. I'm like, what am I going to do with all this rock? This was a problem to get rid of all this rock. Then I realized I really liked it when it piled up nice and neat. And so I ended up using it as borders around different sections of my yard. And it became a really organic, flowy pathway and border around my yard in the, you know, to separate different sections of my in-ground gardens and to keep me out of walking on the sections of stuff that I wanted to keep. Mm -hmm. So it became my solution. That's awesome. Yeah. Rock's good for paths. We used rock for French drains around Mm -hmm. trees. So a French drain is you basically dig a a hole that's more like a A chimney, a, a chimney, a cylinder down into the ground. And then you fill it up with, you can fill it up with wood chips, but then you have to keep filling it up. The benefit is the wood chips break down and they feed the soil, but we would put some rock in there just so they'd be more permanent. And uh, the rock would hold that chimney open and allow excess water water to run down there. So where the ex... There's not a lot of excess water in Phoenix, (laughs) but where our gutters were going, we were having some flooding. And so what we did is we just redirected that water to trees and and put the French drain so it would go down to where the trees needed it. And there you have it, that problem rock and that problem water became an asset. Yeah. In Arizona, in Phoenix, water is a benefit except sometimes it comes all at once and then it's a problem. You know, we've been talking about permaculture courses and both of us have taken permaculture and and taught in permaculture classes. There are permaculture courses around the globe and most of them are actually, they're probably all of them are focused on the concepts that are necessary for the region that you're in. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to recommend that if you're local, if you're in Phoenix, 
you can come to the permaculture course. It's starting this spring. We're announcing it. There's going to be one in spring. You can go to urbanfarm.org slash PDC and find some more information. And that's PDC, permaculture design course, to find more information about a local one. But we're not the only ones giving permaculture courses. So if you live in Idaho, if you live in Washington, if you live in Florida, there's going to be something somewhere near you that is going to have a course that is going to be giving you the information applicable to what you are living in. You live Um, in Canada. Yeah. In Australia. (laughs) We even interviewed somebody who was doing permaculture by the North Pole. That was yep, crazy. And there's somebody doing it in, on the North Pole. What? Right down <laughs> the mo- northernmost city in the world. There, Yeah, there's people doing it in Jordan. I mean, they're, they're, they're just all Around over the place. The and I'm so excited about the Phoenix PDC because we haven't had one in a few years. Yeah, I bet a lot of people have given it up for a couple of years. Yeah, but- so this is a great opportunity to go to a class. Finally. <laughs> With an emphasis on dry land. So this is good for the ones that are dry land. It is an in-person course. We're excited about that. But there are those elsewhere. And I want to encourage, because our audience is not just Phoenix, we recognize that, we appreciate that. And we want to encourage you to reach out and find a permaculture course that's near you and go out there and start finding out about it. We will be obviously through the Urban Farm having some online stuff that's permaculture, introduction to permaculture, and those type of classes. But learn, learn, observe. Observe, test, try, and learn. Enjoy it. We're just scratching the surface here in this chat on what permaculture is. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, even teaching an entire PDC permaculture design course, you can't teach everything that goes that happens in permaculture. Because it, you know, a lot of it is dependent on the people who are doing it. Right. Because ideas come and you're really unlimited in your ideas and how you can do things and arrange things and come up with systems. And it's really fun, really exciting. You know, we both know somebody who is so fastidious and so perfectly centered. He we have a friend who will level everything in his garden and make sure that everything is perfectly meshed out. And when you have a guide that had to say that your, your plants were one to two or three inches apart, that's how far apart his seeds were. We adore him. We end up giving him the name of a permafectionist because he mm-hmm. takes the art and science of working with nature and doing it in a neat, tidy and orderly way. Yeah. He's an amazing guy, but he is a <laughs> permafectionist. I love that. <laughs> But with that, I want to tell you that if you are someone who likes to have something really nice and neat and not really liking the natural flow that sometimes the the untidiness that can happen in permaculture, take heart. It can work for you too. You can apply permaculture concepts into so many different areas and come up with something that's going to work well for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have another friend who has has done beautiful, gorgeous, absolutely lovely permaculture. So, you know, it can be however you, however you want it to be. Yes. It can be as, as tidy as you need it or as free flowing and as lazy as you need it. Mm-hmm. But the important way big or as small, that's true. You can do it big or small, but the important part is that you're working with nature and allowing these systems, these concepts that are actually, it's not a concept. It's only a concept when we start doing it, but what happens out there in nature is so pre-programmed to work that if we keep fighting it, we're putting more effort into something to 
fit to our expectations, we're working against what's happening. Let it work with you. Let it work for you. And you're going to have so many beautiful experiences and surprises in your garden and in your orchards and in your yard and in your life. So we're coming to a close right now. Wanted to keep this within an hour. I promised Greg that, you know, even though he wasn't here, I'd be watching the time. Normally I'm doing this from the other side. And we got some great questions, comments in the chat room. Carrie, thank you. She says, observing is what she seems to be doing these days. Carrie's been doing a lot of fun stuff for us in our chat room. We've noticed what she's been doing. And, you know, Jewel has been doing some good stuff and letting us know what she's been doing. I just want to say thank you for letting me be your host tonight. Kari, thank you so much for participating in our Urban Farm Garden Chats. You were one of the first people I called when I started setting this up, and this was a perfect topic. So, Oh, I enjoyed being here for sure. Thank you. And if you're local, if you're local to Phoenix, don't forget, we got the Great American Seed Up coming up at the end of September on October, actually, the beginning of October, October 1st and 2nd, come join us. We're also having the fruit tree program on September 11th. Come join us. All of these events can be found at urbanforum.org slash events. Kari, you need to promote your webpage one last time before we say goodbye. Cityfarmingbook.com. There you go. Farm out, everyone. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.